How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're looking at global markets for oil and other forms of energy. Many energy experts say OPEC is a dysfunctional band on the way down, while the U.S. is a rising star supplier. Increased domestic drilling could drive the United States past Saudi Arabia as the world's largest petroleum producer by 2020, just seven years. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the economics and politics of petroleum and the changes, chances of cleaner fuels breaking into the market. We'll also touch on the production of electricity, which is more localized and often conflated with oil markets. Joining us with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club, we're pleased to have three experts. Ayal Aronoff is co-founder of the Fuel Freedom Foundation, a Washington, D.C. think tank. Kate Gordon is director of energy and climate programs at Next Generation, a think tank here in the Bay Area, and also a commentator with the Wall Street Journal Online. Gal Luft is co-director of the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security and co-author of the book Petropoli, The Collapse of America's Energy Security Paradigm. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'd like to begin with a brief story about how you came to this uh, area of uh, energy markets and, and petroleum. Just tell us a little bit how you kind of got in the, uh, I won't say you got in the oil business, but uh, um, Galov, tell us how you came to these issues. Um, well, I, um, I was uh, in the national security uh, counterterrorism space, um, still in the days Pre-9-11, when people like me used to go around and say bad things are going to happen on a terrorism front, people say, oh, that's very interesting, uh, and did nothing about it. And when 9-11 happened, everybody got it. I've, I asked myself, what am I going to do now? Because everybody is a terrorism expert. So I, <laughs> but at the same time, New I... New entrance <laughs> in the competitive market, okay. Exactly. <laughs> so I, uh, but at the same time, it dawned on me that um, much of what is happening to America... Much of what happened in, uh, uh, on 9-11, um, you know, when you hear bin Laden says, we attacked America because you guys are in the land of Muhammad and you support regimes that we think are not Islamic enough. And, you know, I, I began to connect the dots. And that brought me to, to uh, think about this issue um, knowing little about what can be done. And I said, you know, maybe there's a room to... Uh, establish a think tank that will look at this issue, uh, but one that is not necessarily funded by industry. So, you know, because most of the players at that time were either funded by the industry or by governments that are oil governments. Uh, so we wanted to, to have a, a, a outfit that does not rely on industry money that can really look at this issue in a neutral and uh, factual and really uh, promote the public interest on this, on energy security. And we'll get into some of your ideas in a moment. Kate Gordon, how did you come to this? Um, you know, sort of, sort of through a bunch of different paths. I have a degree in city planning from Berkeley, and as a planner, I was very focused on how cities are built 
and how we think about, uh, you know, transportation costs and, and the inability of people to live near work, especially here in the Bay Area, and how much time and energy and money people spend, you know, just commuting and, and, and on oil. So I came to it originally from a land use perspective mm-hmm. on, on transportation and thinking about ways that we could reduce those costs and that sort of that oil use and, and cost of gas. But more recently, I've become, you know, obviously very involved in the economic impacts of energy transformation in general. Um, and a lot of that is on the electricity side. So, you know, replacing coal, for instance, with natural gas, with wind, solar, and, and other things. But then transportation is 40% or more of our carbon emissions. Um, and my sense has been that there's been a, a lack of real focus there. I mean, there's been some policies that have tried to get at reducing carbon intensity in fuels, like here in California with the low-carbon fuel standard, um, but generally, the discussion around climate has been on the electricity side, even though oil is this massive piece of the puzzle. And so I increasingly have sort of started thinking there about what do we do on that side? Is it possible to actually reduce carbon in liquid fuels, or do we have to think about a totally new solution? I think that's the area we might have some agreement today, and we'll get back to that sort of uh, the electricity and coal and, and those other issues. Well, Aronoff, let's, talk, uh, let's hear how you kind of came to this. Well, I grew up in Israel. When I was four years old, I lost my father in the Six-Day War. And <clears throat> many years later, my mother remarried and moved here to the United States. And I lost my stepbrother and his wife in September 11. So this was a big wake-up call to me. And I looked around to figure out who is doing anything about it. And, of course, the first person I found was... Galuft over there <laughs> seems to have been the only expert in this field for the longest time. But then in 2008, I went to the Beijing Olympic Games, was a guest of the Chinese Olympic team. <coughs> Sorry. And talking to the Chinese people, we realized that they think the thing they want the most is to own a car. And then you start to calculate the numbers. How many are out there that want wants to own the first car? And all of a sudden it dawned on me that although we have national security issues, I am a big environmentalist myself, so I believe we have environmental issues with oil. We also have a gigantic economic problem in our hand with oil. And that really was the prompt that enabled me to create the Fuel Freedom Foundation. Well, well let's start there then, because uh, God Luft, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about U.S. supply, et cetera, and OPEC, but really isn't Asia and China driving this train? That the, the demand from China and Asia for petroleum will have a big impact on supply and, and prices, and really it's China's really the big player here. Well, China is a player, as was Japan a player in the 1960s and the 1970s. But guess what? Uh, you know, there was enough supply to go around, and the Japanese economy and then the other Asian economies uh, flourished. So I don't think the fact that there are uh, many more people joining the party, that's our problem. And what we try to do, Annie Corin and my, myself in Petropolis, is to do something that actually has never been attempted before, uh, uh, in a methodological way, and that is to look at the price of oil through the prism of how much money will the OPEC countries need in order to stay afloat economically. In other words, how much money do the Saudis need to balance their budget? 
let's take uh, Saudi Arabia as, 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 as just as an illustration. A country of 28 million people, uh, most of them work for the government, very little private sector. 40% are under, under the age of 15. Uh, they don't pay in- income tax, uh, and they expect to get uh, cradle-to-grave services from their government. Um, and by the way, they happen to be the sixth largest consumer of oil in the world. Why is it important that they are the sixth largest consumer of oil? Because the more you consume, the less you have to export. So now you want to ask yourself, how do you keep 28 million people uh, happy and content so they don't storm the palace, right? Um, and you don't end up like Mubarak or Gaddafi. Well, you shower them with money. So you want to ask yourself how much money those people are going to need to bring home to uh, keep the system balanced. So that's what we did with Saudi, with other oil-producing countries. And then we realized that what is really driving the price of oil is not the Chinese demand. I mean, of course, there is demand, but then you ask yourself, is that can that be met with supply? Well, that will have some uh, uh, impact on the price. But what we feel is that what really determines the prize is the, the ability of OPEC to um, uh, manipulate the prize to a level that every time that we, non-OPEC, we increase our production like we do today, they decrease, OPEC decre- decreases their production, and we, through efficiency, we decrease our Demand for oil, they respond by decreasing their production. So what you need to remember, the axiom is, when we drill more, they drill less. And when we use less, they also drill less, just in order to keep the break-even price where they need it to be. And if we understand that, we understand that our set of responses over the past 40 years is not adequate. And that's why we think today a situation that this country is less and less dependent on imported oil, and our cars are more efficient than ever, and we are drilling more than ever, and it hasn't had any impact on the price of oil. The price of oil is still uh, around $100. So clearly something is wrong with our method. Kate Gordon, you agree with that analysis? I, I do. I mean, I, I think that the point cannot be made strongly enough that we have enormous power in this global oil situation in terms of our demand. We are big users. Even though other countries are becoming big users, we are big users of oil still. It's, what, 25% of 20. Uh, 20% of the world oil? And that using less has an impact. I mean, I think this is sort of the, the mantra here at this point is the only way to deal with sort of both the national security implications that we're going to be talking about the price implications that we're talking about and the climate implications we're talking about, the only way to actually address that is to use less oil. So the question to me becomes, what do you do instead? But what I heard Gal Luft saying is that we can use less, but it's not going to have a price impact. It may have some... Let me clarify this. Okay. Uh, Using less has its advantages. It reduces your trade balance. Uh, It keeps more of your money abroad. So more money can be used for economic activity, right. jobs, investment. So I'm not saying we We're should... Not it well, no, and using less means literally in your own budget, using less. So yes. you're spending less. So you, the, uh, price, the price is... It's like energy efficiency. The price per kilowatt hour might be the same, but your energy bill is less. Okay. So, so it has an impact. The climate impact is obvious because they're drilling less. If we use less, they drill less. If, we, if I use less, I pay less at the pump. And if we use less, the trade balance impact is, is positive. So there is a positive set of things that happen. But what is not going to be impacted, 
to my worldview, is the global price right. of the oil. I agree with that. Oil. I agree that's, with that. That's my point. Which is why we shouldn't be focused on that as the thing to bring down. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you hear, Newt Gingrich, for example, he had this book uh, a few years ago which basically summarized the, the old paradigm that I believe has collapsed. We, the title of the book was uh, Drill Here, Drill Now, Pay Less. Right. Okay? Which means if we only drilled more oil, we'd be paid less at the pump. And I'm saying... We've done that. It didn't work. It didn't work. In fact, we pay more. Yeah. Okay. So there's lots of good things can happen, but, <laughs> but we're not going to bring down the, the price. Ayo, let's get you in here. Yeah. Down. Look, I mean, one has to put things in perspective. I think we are already paying way too much for oil. Because if you think about it this way, compare, for example, our oil demand to our coal demand. We paid in 2011 $35 billion for coal. We paid $780 billion for oil product. <laughs> so if the price of oil goes down, say from $90 a barrel, $100 a barrel, down to $50 a barrel, that's $300 million. Billion. Billion. Billion, billion in the pockets of the American people. $300 billion is four to $5,000 for every family. That's more than the stimulus package that got us out of the big recession. And that's annually. But what I've heard here is that the United States is, is and will be a price taker. It, what, it, the influencing global oil price was, is not within the president or any American econ- economic power. Uh, and so, so is the era of cheap oil over? We're we just stuck with high prices and that's... Well, let's be clear, too, about who, in whose interest are high prices. So there's there, there's a the fact that this is a global marketplace and price we can't affect the price by an individual action here in this country for a bunch of reasons, but b high prices are absolutely in the oil company's interest because they get more profit with high prices. But also none of this un- unconventional oil and gas we're currently going after is economic unless there are high prices. I think the Bakken shale in North Dakota becomes economic around eighty dollars a barrel. So there's no reason to do it. There's no reason to go after it. The Monterey Shale here in California, huge reserves, extremely difficult to get at for a whole bunch of reasons. That's not going to be economic without high prices. So it's all self-reinforcing. The high prices drive the unconventional drilling. The high prices are kept up through a a number of means. We're not bringing them down. My, My point here is just like that can't be our goal. We can't be fixated on bringing down the price of oil because that is not going to happen through anything we have any control over. We should be we should be thinking about how to move away from oil. I'm, I'm a bit surprised to hear that because uh, I think that specifically for people who come from the climate side of it, if you don't bring down the price of oil, what you're going to get are the dirtiest of the dirtiest no, of that's the dirtiest true. fuels. That's true. You're going to see people at 200 or $300 a barrel Sucking oil out of those walls here I because agree. it's going to become economic. I so, so I, I think that that uh, what we want to ask ourselves is 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 high oil prices good or bad for and 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 for whom? And I would also add that the I would separate between the international oil companies, what we call big oil, right. and the OPEC countries or the oil the producing state countries. countries. State-owned companies. I think it's very important <clears throat> to make the distinction here to understand that they're two different animals. That's when you right. look at big oil, what we call big oil, which only happen to own about 8% of the world's oil, so they are really price takers here, uh, Exxon, Chevron, BP, Total, all these companies. 
they are becoming increasingly uh, natural gas companies. That's true. Um, John Hofmeister, uh, former president of Shell, told me that, that Shell last year became a de facto natural gas company. So uh, if half of your portfolio is natural gas, you uh, it is in your interest to shift some of the uh, effort to creating demand for natural gas. So you make more money on your natural gas, even if it means less money on your oil, whereas a country like Saudi Arabia cannot afford to, to accept a deal like this. So I would just be, yeah, I, th- I think, think that we're talking point. about a very nuanced um, cast of characters and they have two different interests in mind. Look, I think that the, the paradigm of the environmental movement where it comes to oil use has to shift. The paradigm has always been that if the price goes higher by taxes and by other means, demand will go lower and production will decrease. Since the Oslo Accord, the price of oil went up 400%. What happened? Demand increased and production increased. Even in the United States, where our own demand is decreasing, our production is increasing. Okay? So the paradigm we've started, which means higher prices is good for the environment, because it reduces demand and reduces production, has failed. We need, a new, we need a new paradigm. And what we propose is that paradigm is by capping the price of oil, you take out, as Kate, as Kate said, you take out the incentive for the dirtiest of oil production. Okay, so we agree that you seem to hear be saying that high oil prices benefit certain companies. How about uh, the OPEC countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, for example? Do they benefit from really high oil prices? I mean, I've always thought at some point they're concerned about these new new uh, competition from other fuels become more competitive. It really they don't want it too high because then people try to get off the stuff that, that uh, they're su- they're supplying. Which is why you see within OPEC always tensions. But what are those tensions? The tensions are in what we call the hawks and the doves. Within OPEC, the Saudis, because they have more money, could afford to live with $90 a barrel. So they're considered to be the, the doves, the price doves. Hmm. Whereas the hawks, Iran, Venezuela, Algeria, they need $105 a barrel. But the difference is really in degree, not in kind, okay? Because they all agree that they need between 90 and $105 a barrel now, and down the road it will be much higher. So they have this term that they uh, coined which called the fair price of oil. If you go to Google and you Google fair price of oil, you see that something very funny. Every year it changes. You know, a few years ago, $35 was the fair price of oil, and the Saudi minister of oil said 35 is good. The year after it was 50, then it was 70, then he's, now he says $100 is the fair price of Now what is the fair price of oil? The fair price of oil is what I call the break-even price of oil, and that is the price per barrel that they need to charge in order to keep their balance. Right. Regimes in power. Yeah. Right. And, and they call it fair, I call it break-even, it's the same thing. Are the Saudi oil <laughs> reserves <it> overstated? <laughs> Are the Saudi oil reserves overstated? Uh, there's no idea that any living um, uh, creature can tell what the situation with the Saudi oil reserves. <laughs> and the reason is because there's 
reserve data is a state secret. Uh, and they don't provide access, just like most countries, by the way, don't provide. Russia doesn't. Uh, most OPEC countries don't. All of them, in fact. Uh, so who knows? I mean, we don't know how much oil they have. Some of them don't even know how much the oil they have. And as we see from our own experience, the definition of oil is changing all the time. All of a sudden, you have something called tight oil. You know, I've been in this business for a long time, and I don't remember people talking about tight oil. All of a sudden, we have all of a sudden a million barrels a day coming out of this something that none of us really knew about. <laughs> so uh, the definition of oil is changing all the time due to technology. And, and I think that the discussion of how much oil there is is not really relevant. Uh, the question is how much cheap oil there is. And, and I think that's what, how much cheap oil there is at a point that we can take it and burn it in cars. That should be our question, not how much of the commodity is out there. It is interesting, though, to, to look at Saudi Arabia. I agree. I mean, of course, we don't know how much they actually have. But it is interesting that they – Saudi Arabia uses oil, of course, not only for transportation but also for electricity. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting that they've become one of the most aggressive countries in the world on building solar at utility scale, in part in order to stop using so much of their oil for electricity – they would say that it's for a bunch of reasons. I mean, to conserve oil for sale, I'm sure, is a big one. But it is sort of interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a major national policy. It's not at all just sort of a drop in the bucket. They're, they're, they're trying to build an enormous amount of solar in the next few years. So, Kate Gordon is director of the Energy and Climate Program with Next Generation Think Tank in San Francisco. Also here at Climate One today, we have Gal Luft, co-author of Petropoli, The Collapse of America's Energy Security Paradigm, and Ayal Aronoff, co-founder of the Fuel Freedom Foundation in Washington, D.C., I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about U.S. energy independence. It's often heard in the political debate. Uh, is it attainable? And if, is, if it were magically attained, what would that mean? Well, the concept of energy independence is misleading for two different reasons. In the electricity space, we are already independent, right? We don't import electricity unless we have market conditions where we buy some electricity from Canada. The problem of independence, if there is one, is only in oil. So to say energy independence, there is nothing there. The question is about oil independence. And when we talk about oil independence, the question is independence of what? Hmm. Okay, Is it independence of being able to produce your own oil? Or is it independence in the price of oil? So look at Canada. Canada produces more oil than they need. They are oil independent. Yet the price they pay the pump is exactly like the price we pay the pump. Well, it's a lot higher because of taxes, but yeah, so yeah. they, but they, right. but they, exactly. Okay, and by the way, they don't drive less and consumption of oil is rising even though the price right. is higher. Okay. So the issue is really how to <clears> become <throat> price setters rather than price takers. For us to become price setters is oil independence. Right. When, when people talk about energy dependence, they often think about, well, we're not going to be hostile to someone who's setting the price or, or controlling the supply. Go left. Well, I mean, uh, one good example is, you know, in 2011, there was a war in Libya. And the price of oil for American consumers went up by $21 a barrel. How come? We do not import oil from Libya. Why should we suffer? Why should we pay... extra per barrel because the Libyans have a civil war. So it shows you that it doesn't really matter 
because the price of oil is global. When it goes up, it goes up for everybody. I think the best uh, way to understand the role of oil in our life is to use the, the, the salt analogy. You know, uh, we had a book uh, a few years ago called Turning Oil into Salt. And we, we, because we really try to come up with a good way to explain the situation. And, and we came to salt because salt was, for most of human history, the most important commodity in people's lives because it was the only way that you could preserve food, right? Before the invention of refrigeration and canning, if you wanted to survive during the winter, you had to cure enough food with, with salt. And wars were fought over salt and colonies were built around who has salt and everybody thought about salt. So, And, and there were all kind of places like Tartuga, Boa Vista, Turk Island, places that we, we don't even know where they are on the map, but they were, they were just as important as today's Abu Dhabi and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Why? Because they had salt. So, so then came two simple inventions, canning on refrigerations, and, and they diminish the strategic importance of, of salt. But here is the funny thing. Today, we import more salt than we ever did before, and we use more salt than we ever did before. <laughs> now, does anybody care where our salt is coming from? Do, do do you know? Do you care? We, we don't... You, you, you I have know. some very nice pink Himalayan salt. Yeah, the pink salt. Himalayan yes, salt. Yes, I, I like care that. A lot that about. That's good stuff. There's a high carbon footprint. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. If, if we are to hear about our salt dependency, it's more likely to come from our cardiologist than from our present, right? <laughs> so so the, the issue is here to reduce the strategic importance of oh, the yeah. commodity. Just like we diminished the strategic importance of salt and made it into just another commodity to trade, we need to do the same to oil. And that, I think, should be the core of the new energy paradigm. So how to do that? Take well, on. I just want to pick up on this, this energy independence question because, to me, one of the big questions is not independence from other countries because I agree with everything these two have said, and they are, they are the experts up here on the ge- geopolitics. But we are increasingly, increasingly going to have to think about independence or resilience, independence from or resilience to the volatility of the oil markets, which is in, which is extremely tied to climate change. So just to bring this back to climate, we had an oil disruption in higher prices when Hurricane Katrina happened. If a Gulf of Mexico event were to happen, we would have significantly, potentially not higher prices because of all these dynamics, but it would disrupt our oil supply, 30% of our oil uh, coming through there. So there, there are climate disrupt. So we're adding to climate change disruption potential by drilling and using a lot of oil. We're more likely to have disruption in our oil supply because of climate change. And oil is inherently volatile anyway because of all of these things that can happen politically that happen in different parts of the world where we don't even get our oil but that affect our oil price and our oil supply lines. So my feeling about independence is we should be thinking about independence from that set of extremely volatile conditions that are sort of inherent to the oil supply chain. And independence there, how do you get to that? You really get to it by... Reducing the strategic, uh, uh, you know, reliance on oil, which gets you to this question of what do you do instead, and what do you do instead is a huge 
question. I mean, it's, it's, it is not a simple question at all. It's, uh, we have an entire infrastructure, an entire way of doing cities built on this commodity, so it's a big deal. But right. I agree that it's, that's where we have to go. Well, let's take a whack at how fuels, other fuels could compete with petroleum. <laughs> Talk about the, the obstacles and, and what has a chance. There's been a lot of fuels, and we'll touch on some of them, corn, ethanol, electric cars, et cetera. What has a chance? If, if oil is the problem instead of coal, as, as I all said earlier, um, what are the chances to um, to introduce some competition in the marketplace? Um, zero if we don't change the cars. The problem is that right. we all talk about the fuel. Uh, we're going to be ethanol or methanol or natural gas or electricity. But we have cars. We put every year on the road in the United States 14 million cars. Basically, you open the warranty and it says you can only run me on petroleum. Right. And as long as that is the case, we are captive. Okay? So we have to change the type of cars that we put on the road. What OPEC fears most is competition. Okay, and I want to explain what, to give a positive example of where I think we need to, to go. Uh, look at electricity. When you buy a light bulb, okay, or any electrical appliance, the light bulb doesn't tell you you can only run uh, electrons made from uh, coal or nuclear or solar. Right. It's, it's, it's commodity agnostic. It doesn't care how you made the electrons that it uses. Our cars do care. They are not commodity agnostic. They only like to drink petroleum. So what we need are cars to be more like a light bulb in the sense that they could accommodate energy sources, different energy sources, and have those sources compete against each other in more or less free market environment. Now, why is it important? Once you have commodity arbitrage, different commodities can compete against each other. They compete over market share. Competition over market shares, that's economies, economics 101, competition over market share brings down to competition over price. Is that what's happening in Brazil? Yes, absolutely. And that's exactly what happened in Brazil, which is why, by the way, in Brazil in 2008, just to remind the, the listeners, uh, in Brazil, most cars are flexible fuel cars. So they can run on any combination of gasoline and alcohol. Okay? So, and they have a sugar industry. They make ethanol. But it's not important what they use. The, the concept is flexible fuel vehicles. In 2008, in Brazil, when all of us were suffering through the high gas prices, uh, gasoline in Brazil became an alternative fuel. Hmm. The, the, the uh, Brazilians bought less gasoline than ethanol because they had cars that enabled them to shift on the fly from an expensive liquid to a cheap, cheaper liquid. And... You know, two years later, they had a drought, and they switched back to gasoline. So, you know, the, the important thing is to, that, that individuals are economic creatures. Do those cars cost more? Well, 100 bucks more per car. So it is GM says 70. US, and U.S. companies make a lot of them. Yeah. So we know how to do this. So <laughs> uh, there's been some attempts at flex fuel, fuel in the United States, mainly around corn. Uh, didn't go very well, Kate Gordon, in terms of, uh, you know, there's a few ones, you know, basically, if you live in Wisconsin, you could do it. Otherwise, uh, 40 years. <laughs> My home state. So um, I'm always happy to talk about Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I am sort of having a, a whole sea change in how I feel about this question. So it's a good time to talk about it, which is, You know, we're spending a lot of time in California thinking through this very issue. We have a low-carbon fuel standard in California that requires that our fuel become 10% less carbon-intensive by 2020. And there's a big debate here, as folks know, about how to get to that. And 
there are people on one side that say the only way to get to it is sugar ethanol and you'd have to import it and it's life cycle costs and there's land costs. And there's another set of people that say, oh, but there's new innovations every day in biofuels. Now, both of those things are sort of true. The way I'm coming to think about this question is, I don't know that if you take a climate perspective on alternative fuels, I can't actually think of a really good liquid fuel alternative. If you really take into account the land costs, the life cycle costs, the cost of aggregating, and we know this is what happened with cellulosic ethanol, the sheer cost of getting all of the corn stover or getting all the switchgrass to one place, sorting through it and then and then running it through an enzymatic process and turning it into something is extremely expensive. So my feeling is increasingly that, honestly, increasingly that where we should look for technology innovation is on the electricity side electrification, and also on the vehicle side. But vehicles, not just through engine conversion, but also just changing the vehicles, making them out of lighter material, making them more efficient, getting them to a higher mile per gallon standard. I have a lot more faith, frankly, in innovations in those two places, in electricity and in and in electrification and in um, vehicle manufacturing than I do in the liquid fuel side. Aronoff, you drive an electric car, do you agree? <laughs> I <laughs> drive an electric car, actually I have to have one of the, my, I drive the S number 17 of the production line. It's an unbelievable car. Which is the Tesla. So it's a Tesla. Tesla S, yes, of course, sorry. <laughs> Once you drive a Tesla car, you don't really want to go to drive a gasoline car. It's the driving experience that is so much better. It's not because it's electric. It's not because it's environmentally friendly, and it's not because it has a gigantic screen that you can run your own office while you're driving. (laughs) It's exhilarating to drive. And hence, I think this will end up being the long-term winner. But think about it another way. In my my car, there are about 8,000 little battery cells. If Tesla makes a million of these cars, which will make it one of the most successful companies, right, we will need about 8 billion of those battery cells. The whole world production of cells like that are are in the hundreds of millions today. And a million Tesla are not going to do anything to the price of gasoline because every year we produce 90 million new cars all run on petroleum. So this process has begun. The process has begun. And it will continue because the product is better. But the rate of adoption, the rate of replacement of the fleet, the rate of ramp up of production capacity, the rate of building the supply chain, which is mining and all those other things that requires to happen, the rate is slower than we hoped it would be. As a result, we will expect to see real changes of demand on oil because of electric cars in 20, 30 years. The question is, what do we do in that period? 20, 30 years. And that brings us back to the liquid fuel issue. So liquids are a bridge to, okay, to the ultimate electrification. Exactly. So we need to look at intermediate solutions. We know where we are going. We need to look at intermediate solutions. Now, in this 20 to 30 years, there is a good likelihood that a car that is bought today, probably in 20 years, will still be on the road. Right? Right? So what we need is we need to enable the cars that are already being in production 
and the cars you guys already own today to run on fuels not made from petroleum. Mm-hmm. Now, if he would have said here 10 years ago, he would have said this could never happen. Because the car was <coughs> hardwired, was built to run on one fuel. Okay? And in addition to that, the replacement fuel that had to compete with oil were all very expensive. Okay? So two big things happened. The first thing that happened is the car companies realized that the international market for cars is bigger than the U.S. market for cars. And as such, and every country has different fuels, right? So as such, they went to something they called the global platform. So they removed everything that has to do with regards to fuel and they put it in the computer that runs the car. The engine doesn't know anything about fuel. Remember we used to have timing belt? This was a real actual belt. Yeah. The, all of this stuff is all gone. We have computer. When you press the accelerator, it's, a, it's just like pressing a keyboard on the, on the, on the mm-hmm. computer. And the car says, oh, he's trying to accelerate or she's trying to accelerate. Great, let me just do this. And here's how you do it. Okay, so we can upgrade the software on the car to make cars that are on the road today to work exactly like car working in Brazil. In Brazil, you have Mercedes's, you have pickup trucks, you have Ferraris, you have Lamborghinis. All of them can work on ethanol fuel. So but where's the resistance? Why I, isn't I, it? I, I, I think that it's dangerous when you talk about ethanol. Because ethanol is a very charged word in, in our, you know, everybody has a position about the E word. Uh, and America is basically divided with the ethanol haters and ethanol lovers, depending on where you are. I would like to talk less about ethanol and more about the other alcohol that I think has a huge potential, both from an economic and from an environmental perspective, and that is methanol. methanol. Yeah. Why methanol? Because the big play today is natural gas, okay? This is what we have a lot of. This is what is very cheap. And we don't use it in transportation. Only less than 1% of our natural gas is used to move cars. If you think about this, an electric car in many parts of the country is a natural gas vehicle. I mean, you make the electricity from natural gas, and your electric vehicle is a natural gas vehicle. Boone Pickens thinks that an ele- a natural gas vehicle is a, a vehicle that has a canister <coughs> with gas compressed in it. There are other ways of using natural gas, and that is to turn the natural gas into a very cheap liquid called methanol. And this methanol, just like ethanol, can be mixed into our fuel supply and blended in and, and, and reduce our petroleum uh, dependency and run on flexible fuel cars like the cars that are sold in Brazil. Um, uh, the research on Petropoli, on the book, took me to, to China and um, to a province called uh, Shanxi. Now, Shanxi has more people than California. Uh, so it's not considered the biggest province, but still it's very large. And uh, go to any uh, fuel station in Shanxi or uh, any other 14 provinces where they use methanol, and you'll see that the Chinese are already blending... Uh, 15, 30, 45, 85 percent methanol into their fuel. Now, the Chinese, because they don't have natural gas, they're making it from coal, which is much dirtier uh, process. But 
uh, if you make it from natural gas, it is superior to gasoline on all level, uh, both in terms of um, uh, SOx, NOx, all the uh, particulate em- emissions, as well as CO2 emissions. So, so I think that, that unless you're looking for a perfect solution, sort of zero, 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 um, I think that methanol is a very, very bridge, a very good bridge solution since it's cheaper, it reduces your um, your uh, greenhouse gases and emissions, and it's scalable, which is the most important thing, scalability. Because really, a 1% or 2% solution, that's not going to that feel good, but it's not going to make any difference. We need something that can be scaled. Kate Gordon, is uh, methanol the answer, and can it be purchased in the United States today? Um, well, on the first question, let me just say, I you know, I actually think then natural gas does have a place in in this whole conversation. But I just want to contest for a second. We don't actually know that natural gas is less greenhouse, green, greenhouse gas intensive than a number of other options at the moment. And the reason we don't know that is because the, in the United States, natural gas is exempt because of the 2005 energy bill. It's exempt from the Clean Water Act. It's been exempt from a number of Clean Air Act provisions. There isn't a standard systematic way to measure things like the methane leakage from the natural gas extraction operations. We do know from point-by-point source data that the natural gas leakage is significant in some places, in part, honestly, because a lot of the natural gas producers, unlike on oil, are small wildcatters who are not necessarily using the best technology and not necessarily following the best standards. So there's a really big question when it comes to natural gas of what is the actual methane leakage and what do we do about it. I believe we can figure that out, and I believe we can do something about it. But So I'm only comfortable with it as a solution after we figure that out and after we've contained methane emission leakage. Because methane is a big deal when it comes to greenhouse gas gases. It's, it's got a short half-life. It comes into the atmosphere right away. It's a bigger deal than carbon in our immediate lifetime. So I would just say that caveat is a big caveat. But um, I do believe it's fine. It's, it's determinable and regulatable, and we need to do that. And then I feel like it's part of the conversation. Kate Gordon is Director of Energy and Climate Programs at Next Generation, the think tank, and also an energy expert with the Wall Street Journal. We're talking about uh, oil markets and transportation at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Detroit and Houston. You think that there's, Kate Gordon, you think there's more innovation coming out of Detroit and at grappling with this issue on the car side than there is on oh, the yeah. fuel side. Is yeah, right? I mean, just take a quick look, and, I, and you know, we should hear from, from you too, but I take a quick look at, at these industries, they're very different. I mean, when did we see all the innovation coming out of Detroit? It was when the car companies were totally backed up against the corner and potentially losing their entire market share and bailed out by the government. So, you know, these were companies in distress that needed a new model. And then we had the CAFE standard that was passed, and they had a huge kick in the pants to get a new model and bring down emissions. That's a that's a very different story than the than your international oil companies. The international oil companies are not suffering right now. They are not up against a, a, a wall. They are not desperate. They are not in a position where they need to negotiate. Particularly, oil prices are high. Natural gas is a booming new market. They have an. They, in fact, climate change is good for them in a number of ways because it's reducing oil polar ice caps. So they can now get through a bunch of waterways they didn't used to be able to get through. They are doing pretty well. I just don't see them having a push toward innovation, particularly. I don't think they're going to be the answer on this, Carlos, frankly. Uh, Greg, you asked us to disagree, and I, was, I found it very hard to, to do with uh, until now, but this is the moment I have to disagree with Kate. I, I think you may not like the oil industry's innovation, but to say that they're not innovative, it's, it's I think... 
let's look at what they've done. No, 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 no. To be clear, they're not. They have a huge incentive to innovate to keep using their products. They are. They do not. What they're yeah, not going to do yeah. is become different kinds of companies. Sure. They're and not going to become electrification. Why would they? Why would they? I mean, why would, why would they? they? I mean, they? They? I mean yeah. they are. They're not supposed to produce shoes. They are there to satisfy their shareholders. I, I, no, I am not blaming them for this no, no, position. Okay. I just think they are, they are, there are a bunch of reasons why they're not the answer to getting off oil. No, no, of course, and, and we should not look up to them to do it. They are, Nor should they be. Yeah, I mean, let's, but I just, yeah. I find it was a very strange position. I have to defend them, but, but, but they are very innovative. I think that to, when you look at what they are pulling out of the ground and depth that and going into the ocean and doing this amazing stuff. Uh, I, um, so it requires a lot of innovation. In fact, the, the, some of the most innovative uh, players, uh, the fact that we don't like the outcome is a different story. No, I, and, I, and we don't actually disagree, so we uh, couldn't disagree. Yeah. But oh, should. so we need to work hard. But, but, <laughs> but, but I think that, that where I feel that there is a sea change or a, uh, look, I, I listened to the CEO of Exxon a few months ago, he gave a speech before the Council of Foreign Relations, and he said something very interesting on natural gas. He said, we're all losing our shirts, okay? So everything that they make on oil, they lose on natural gas. So I think that as they become de facto natural gas companies, they will be more and more inclined to look for demand. Because, look, natural gas, if we don't find ways to use it, it will be exported to Asia, and that's why we see such a push today for LNG, because they need to get at three dollars per million BTU, you can't you can't break even. You need the price to be much higher. So either you export it, or you create ways to use it domestically as chemicals, as fuels, as fertilizers, as something to build American industry. But one way or the other, it will find itself uh, used either by us or by the Japanese or the Chinese or the Koreans, or who knows uh, where it's going to end. But, but, well, but Let me pause just for one second. We're going to uh, uh, continue for a moment, put a, a microphone up here to invite your participation. Uh, if you'd like to join us with one, uh, one part uh, brief comment or question, we'd like to have you join us. Um, if you're just joining us on the radio, our guest today at Climate One or A.L. Aronoff, uh, co-founder of the Fuel Freedom Foundation, Kate Gordon with the Next Generation here in San Francisco, and Gal Luft, co-author of Petropoli, the Collapse of America's Energy Security Paradigm. Um, Greg, I just wanted to say A.L. that Aronoff. what's happening to us now, because the price of natural gas is so low, it's worthwhile to burn it rather than to use it. For so we are it flaring it in mass quantities. So the, what's going on is we get the liquids out and we flare the gas. So the, the motivation to use a fuel like methanol is, is multiple fold. First of all, it's a high octane fuel that will enable this innovation in the fuel economy. Today, the car companies are hamstrung by the low quality of the fuel that is produced. Gasoline is a low quality fuel. That's why racing drivers don't, I mean, they, ru- they run on alcohol fuels. So this will provide much better leg up in order to get higher quality engines, higher quality combustions, and, and so on. Can it be and purchased in the United States today, methanol? Methanol is the largest liquid commodity that is not a fuel because it is the precursor of a lot of the petrochemical industry. They use the chemical industry. Uses the chemical it. industry yeah. use it in, in mass quantities. It's not purchasable as a fuel, though. Is it is illegal to be sold as a fuel. 
Ah, so there needs to be some law change to make this to make this happen. Okay, I, my a, just a little thing. Some le- legal barriers. Okay. <laughs> uh, let, let's uh, welcome to Climate One. Let's have our audience question. Hi, uh, my name is Peter Gisela. Um, I'm interested in a question about alternative strategies for educating the general public on energy concerns, especially the topic you're interested in. Um, about 30 years ago, I proposed the Youth Energy Corps based upon using the Selective Service Program as the leverage to get youth involved in community service activities. And 10 years ago, I asked Franklin Orr of the Stanford Energy Project if he had about 200 youth per congressional district across the country year after year interested in energy projects, what activity would they should be engaged in? And he said that conservation and solar technology would be small efforts of positive Impact, but education, um, understanding the energy consumption in their congressional districts and communicating that to the general public in their congressional. And your question? So my question is, have you considered alternative strategies for educating the general public on these concerns of energy issues? Well, I can tell you that, first of all, this is what we are doing right here. We are now talking to the general public. (laughs) Um, but in Fuel Freedom Foundation, in our, in our foundation, there is a very large portion of our budget is dedicated to educating the public. Of course, the issue is always to come first with good policies, with good science, and with good technologies, and then you can actually go to the public and tell them, okay, this is what you actually got to do. And that has been a, by far the highest barrier. Now that we have a plan like that, that is the thing that is coming next. I, I have to say that, I, okay, that really quickly on this, I think there's a, a level, and we talk a lot to, I would say, the informed, educated public. Um, I, we hear a lot about American education and how people don't know that there are three branches of government and they don't know, you can't even name one. It's actually sort of shocking, 30% of adult Americans can't name one branch of government. Um, but we don't hear about the shocking numbers on the energy side, and it is actually true that most Americans can't tell you where electricity comes from, where fuel comes from, what impact that has on from the, wall. the environment. From the wall. Well, they, they, from, right, the wall. Just, from the plug in the wall, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's, there's very little education on this stuff. And, you know, honestly, it is actually true that the environmental sciences textbooks that are used in high schools across the country are many of them written by the oil, gas, and coal industry. So the extent to which there are there is education happening at high schools, it's education happening in a partic- with a particular bias toward the status quo and toward where we currently use our energy. So I think it's a huge problem. It's not something I personally work on, but we do have a children and family side to our think tank, and it's something we've talked about a lot because it's a it's a real sort of foundational issue. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Adam Bergman. Uh, I've been around the sector, around clean transportation, probably the last eight or nine years. One thing you guys really didn't touch on, which I think is a, is a huge issue, is infrastructure and, and who's going to pay for it. And w- one of the things I think politicians have really failed on, and you guys talked a bit about in the beginning, was the amount of cost above what actual production cost is that you're selling and how much money is actually we're sending to Saudi Arabia for no apparent reason outside of the fact that's what it goes by. There's no supply and demand uh, continuum at an actual price. So, so how do you take potentially and convince the public that we're sending all this money unnecessarily and actually take some of that or find another way to build out this infrastructure? Because clearly without it, it's going to take, as you, I think, said, potentially 30 years to get us to places with either natural gas vehicles or even with electric vehicles. Thank you. 
It's going to cost a lot, earlier enough. Yeah, infrastructure <laughs> is a very big part of this discussion, of course. And one need to understand that the way that the system is currently geared, even if you today can produce a fuel that can run on cars for less, you will not be able to sell it in the market. And the reason is that the fueling infrastructure is a, a, a sort of a, a... Well, it's not exactly a monopoly, but... It is uh, governed um, by the brand. Okay, so under the canopy, you can only have product produced by the brand. So, what we need to do in order to break that is once we make these fuels legal and we make the conversion legal, is to go to the Walmart, the Costco, the Safeways, 7-Eleven. Those um, vendors sell gasoline as a loss lead to get people into their stores. The new fuels, because the energy content is slightly lower than gasoline, will require more trips to the store, so it, is, it will provide great motivation for these people to stock the fuels. Hmm. Uh, Luft, I also want you to uh, comment briefly on 100 years ago when there was fuel choice and competition for, uh, for transportation. Fuel. Sure. 100 years ago when the first cars mm-hmm. started, um, 30% of America's cars were run on steam, uh, 30% of another third was uh, run in, uh, ran on liquid fuels and the rest ran on batteries. So, you know, it's interesting that when the whole era of uh, motorized transportation started, uh, there was a lot of choice uh, going around. But then came a few decades of uh, world wars and depression and uh, prohibitions and, and lots of uh, and droughts in the Midwest and all kind of things that really consolidated the, uh, what I call petropoly, the petroleum monopoly and that's where we are today. And that was all good and as long as uh, gasoline was very cheap, uh, which is up until about 10 years ago, nobody cared about this, and, but that changed uh, uh, recently when prices are going higher and higher. Um, it was and, good until we didn't know about climate either, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> you know, just as for the role the of government thing. in this, and, and I think we all have to remember that we live in an era in which government is not as generous as it used to be, which is in some ways, a, I think, a good thing. But, but uh, I chose to, to start the book uh, uh, with Milton Friedman and end it with Friedrich Hayek hmm. because those are two uh, libertarian uh, thinkers who thought about a lot about the role of government. And I just want to read you the quote from Milton Friedman. He said, that the first and most urgent necessity in the era of government policy is the elimination of those measures which directly support monopoly. That's Milton Friedman. So, so what are the measures that directly support monopoly? The petroleum-only vehicle is one of the measures that support and enables a monopoly. And it's actually a very important thing to remind to Tea Party uh, GOP members of Congress who uh, tout the free market and the free market and the free market that one of those places where you can really liberate the market is to open cars to competition so that commodities can really co- compete against each other uh, and, and that's a role for government and it doesn't really cost you that much because if GM says that it costs them $70 uh, per vehicle uh, to make it flex fuel that's a very very low hanging fruit Okay, so let's start off by opening our cars to liquid fuel choice, 
move into electricity and others, these things need to run in parallel. It's not one, one or the other. You know, a, a GM Volt can also be a flexible fuel vehicle. There's no, there's no reason why it shouldn't have both. It's not one or the other. That's what uh, we can have both. we got about eight minutes and two questions. Let's get these in. Yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have your question. Thank you. Uh, first, a shout-out to a fellow urban planner from the Midwest here, um, <laughs> which really relates to my question. A lot of the solutions I've heard deal with technologies and fuel types and not really with land use. Um, our communities over the last 70 years have really gone from pedestrian-centric, transit-centric to auto-centric. And so I'm wondering why in the next few decades we can't then reverse that trend. I, I didn't hear that as a solution. No, I mean, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's, it's where, as I said, I started on this whole thing. And um, you know what's interesting about the land use question is that in some ways it's actually changing. We don't think a lot about the relationship between the mortgage crisis and oil, but actually there is a relationship in that a number of places that got extremely sprawl-oriented in the era of sort of cheap housing have now shrunk. Again, Detroit is a prime example of this. In Detroit, they're actually uh, filling in basements, knocking down houses, filling in basements, and returning outer Detroit to agricultural land. That's an extreme example, but we see some of this here in California, too. Um, and companies like BMW, which I'm actually really interested in, uh, are, are planning their new cars for this new reality. They think that we're coming back to an era of mega cities where there's really there's more city density and more people living in urban areas. And that, and they're thinking about new car designs like their megacity vehicle, which is a carbon nanofiber vehicle, electric car, uh, and what they are doing to deal with range anxiety is people who own that car have access to a fleet of BM, regular BMWs, which are basically their zip cars. So if you want to go on a road trip, you just get a different BMW to go on a road trip. But it's not your car. They bring it out to you. And I think that's kind of genius because it's, it's designing for a different kind of city and a different kind of lifestyle. But, um, but they really feel, and they spend a lot of time thinking about this and a lot of money in it, invested in it, they actually think cities are changing. And I think that's an interesting idea. The idea of sharing rather than owning. In fact, uh, if you'd like to podcast of this and other Climate One programs, they're in the iTunes store. We had a whole program on the sharing, borrowed wheels, sharing economy, and uh, mobility as a service rather than a depreciating asset, uh, a metal you put in your garage. Let's uh, have our next question. My name is Philip Morrison. Um, I actually would like you guys to go back to... The issue of price, um, I'd like to elaborate more. One, on I didn't hear any of you guys talking about policy. And two, the catch-22 between you lower the price and you do take away all the, the dirty fossil fuels from the competition, but at the same time you also kill away, kill the good fuels, for example, alternative fuels that are trying to enter the market that initially have a higher price. So one, how do you deal with this price issue that we do want to lower the price, but we don't want to kill alternative fuels? And two, where does policy fall in this whole new dynamic? Okay, so I leave the policy question to Gal here, but just on the price and on replacement fuels. So what we think is that the biggest opportunity in any market is to be able to capture the, the big part of the market. What we have been actually seeing in the replacement fuel world is everybody is fighting on the periphery, on the re- renewable fuel standards, which is 10% of the fuel. So 
everybody is fighting for the 10% rather than saying, no, we are going to try to conquer the vast majority of the market, which is the 90%. What happens is if you reduce, if you enable competition and you, fuel of choice, say, can be appear at the pump, so the idea of competition is not just that the car can run on any fuel, is that you as consumer can choose any fuel. So if you and your friends want to buy, for example, only fuel made from algae, only renewable fuel, only fuel made from corn, only fuel made from the sugar, you can decide to go to the gas pump or to build, um, make a buying group and obtain the fuel. Today, this is illegal. So what's going to be required? Some, is this going to require Congress to, to re- reduce some of the legal barriers to new entrants? Yeah, so Gullift, Gullift, is that n- not I mean? only Congress, also the administration. You know, a lot of it is happening at the EPA level. There are a lot of barriers to entry. Look, what we want is a situation which, like, like in our food consumption, you know, we all buy food. Uh, we all have preference when it comes to food. Some like uh, organic food. Some, and we're willing to pay more for health. We mil- we, uh, we're willing to more, pay more for religious reasons. We have a lot of choices when it comes to our. Uh, food uh, choices and preferences, and we all value things differently. We want to have the same situation with fuels. Uh, and the best way to compare fuels, by the way, that's one of the mistakes that we've been making all along, is that we always compare fuels on a uh, miles per gallon matrix, how many miles I can go per gallon. It's a very wrong approach to fuels. The, the economist in me would like to see our valuation of fuels based on how much we pay to, drive, to travel one mile on a fuel. That's the only way that you can mm. compare electricity and liquids and gas and everything. Cents per mile. That's the only way that you can do apples and apple, uh, to apples comparison. So the, the, what we want to do is, first of all, open the car to competition through the introduction of an open fuel standard. What does an open fuel standard mean? It's a very simple legislation that says very simply that you cannot sell a car in the United States unless it offers you some choice. Hmm. And without choosing any winner, without dictating to the automaker which technology to choose. If they want to do electric, they can do electric. If they want to do flex fuel, they can do whatever they can. And there will be different markets for different products, by the way. I don't think that they should, there should be one silver bullet here. So that's an open fuel standard. doesn't cost any money. No tax incentives, no um, uh, subsidies. That's on the car side. On the fuel side, the most important thing is to eliminate the barriers to entry to fuels, assuming that they are complying with clean air uh, regulations and with uh, safety, of course. And, you know, we don't want to kill people. But assuming that they are at least as good as gasoline, why can't we allow them to compete? We should open the market. Let's see competition in fuels, that will drive industry, investors. Imagine to yourself, if you want to invest in the production of a fuel, but you know that the cars cannot run on it. Why would you invest in uh, half a billion dollars uh, in building a methanol plant if the cars cannot run on it? But if you know that from year X, the cars will be able to run on it, that makes sense to begin to invest. Infrastructure follows. The whole market begins to grow organically, bottom to top. That's already there. There's a class of fuels. We're coming to the end here. There's a class of fuels called drop-in fuels that can run through existing pumps and existing engines. And, Kate Gordon, it's been a disappointment. It hasn't really taken off. 
I mean, I think that the as various people have pointed out here, uh, audience and us, there there isn't an infrastructure that supports this right now. It's a, there's new entrants to the market are having an extremely hard time in the current infrastructure, which is extremely petroleum focused. So but, it is hard to drop. It is hard to get an infrastructure that's oriented one way and owned primarily by people who are oriented one way to to drop in to new new to to embrace new ideas. And there's a financing isn't there for a billion-dollar refinery to do that stuff. It's, it's also fine. extreme. I mean, it's a whole other show, but it's extremely yeah. hard to commercialize technologies in the United States. We have a big gap between – a big valley of death between pilot stage uh, new technologies in energy and in a bunch of other fields and between commercializable. Great. Last word. So. You can look at it in two different ways. The first thing is it's really, really hard to assemble gasoline from independent components. Yeah. The thing that took nature hundreds of millions of years, it's really, really hard to do. That's why we're looking to open the market for small molecule fuels, okay, what we call alcohol fuels. It's much easier to do. You don't need 21st century biology to do it. You can do it with 19th century chemistry. This is a famous Galuf sentence, by the way. Okay? <laughs> so one thing is to re- reduce the barrier is to reduce the complexity. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as we said before, even if you can produce the, the drop-in fuel, nobody wants to buy right. because the supply chain is owned by the oil, else. by existing monopoly. Yep. Okay? So you have to open it up and let so, a provider of fuels access to the consumer. We have to end it there. Our thanks to our guest today, Climate One Ayel Aronoff, is co-founder of the Fuel Freedom Foundation in Washington, D.C. Kate Gordon is director of energy and climate program at Next Generation, a think tank here in the Bay Area. And Gal Luft is co-director of the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security and co-author of Petropoli, the Collapse of America's Energy Security Paradigm. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for joining us at Climate One today. Thanks.